Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello and welcome to this episode of LawPod. I'm Dr. Bruna McNeil and I'm a lecturer here in the School of Law at Queen's. And what we're going to talk about today is Loch Ness. Obviously, Loch Ness has been in the news and we've seen a lot of media coverage about the crisis that's unfolding there at the minute. What we want to focus on today are the issues around the ownership of the loch and how that has impacted on some of the problems that we're seeing there at the moment. So as well as being a lecturer in the School of Law, I'm also involved in an organisation called the Environmental Justice Network Ireland or EJNI. Um, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Dr. Kira Brennan, who is the director of EJNI. And we jointly produced a briefing paper a couple of weeks ago, looking specifically at this issue of the ownership of Loch Ness and um, how we might go about securing a more sustainable future. So I think maybe if we start by talking a little bit about EJNI, about the Environmental Justice Network Ireland, um, and and really, I suppose, Kira it might be useful to kind of explain why EJNI is, has been interested in the, the crisis that's unfolded at Loch Ness and, and some of the issues that are coming up there. Yeah, thanks very much, Bruna. So my, my name is Kira Brennan, as uh, Bruna has said, and I'm formerly an academic and I am still a visiting research fellow at the University of Newcastle um, Law School. And in 2019, along with um, some colleagues from across multiple organisations in in Northern Ireland and in Ireland, um, we set up the Environmental Justice Network Ireland. And really the, the the reason why we set it up was because everyone was becoming so frustrated with the lack of any meaningful action in the in the arena of environmental governance reform in the North and in the context of weak cooperation across the border. So we set up EJNI really to promote collaboration between lawyers, academics, NGOs, civil society to try to work together to push for reform across a number of really critical areas. So obviously Loch Ness really encapsulates the reasons why EGNI was formed because it's an incredibly complex problem where which is going to involve solutions coming from all of those stakeholder groups that we've we've just mentioned. Um, but it's also going to require quite a lot of political investment to to try to you know fix and reverse the, the problems that have gone on. So that's why EGNI is really interested in Loch Ness. Um, and I think the other reason is that it's an it's really an all-island problem. And I think this is something that has possibly been underplayed in the, the media and the press at the minute, that part of Loch Ness catchment is across the border. I think obviously, you know, pollution doesn't respect the border. We also know from media reports and from pollution reports down south that the blue-green algae problem, which is one of the issues in Loch Ness, is an issue in many other rivers and lakes, you know, down south. And I think as well that what we're going to need to do is work together um, with stakeholders to consider, you know, why this is an issue. But really fundamentally, I think, um, you know, and I suppose this leads on to, to Brona's research expertise, that we have broader problem with environmental governance in, in the north, which 
is Loch Ness is just one example. It's a very obvious example and it's one that has seems to have captured the public's imagination. But we've had systemic failure across really almost all areas of environmental regulation stretching back at least 30 years. We've seen that. There's been other examples. You know, we've seen serious problems with planning. We've seen the, 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 the dump at Maboy is one of the largest in Europe. Yeah. And the fact that these problems have happened here indicates a, a broader problem, Bruna. So I think that that's one layer of issues that um, have contributed to, to the Loch Ness problem. But really, a lot of those issues have been dictated or informed by the question of ownership. This is what I'm interested in hearing about. Is like, yeah. wh- Why yeah. is ownership of the Loch so important yeah. at this stage? Well, just like like you say, Kira, there you know we obviously have really like a, a catastrophic failure of environmental effective environmental regulation um, across the jurisdiction, and that means that in in the absence of that kind of effective layer of of regulation, the ownership of the land of natural features like Loch Ness is really really critical because owners essentially have the decision making power over things like that's what ownership is. Property is having the agenda setting power um, over our things. And, and like sometimes that's quite uncontroversial. So like it's relatively uncontroversial that I have the decision-making power over my laptop, for example. But whenever we're talking about something like Loch Ness, which is, I mean, we've heard in the media reports, I heard one statistic that it's, it's bigger in surface area, it's bigger than Malta. So like we have to kind of ask ourselves whether it's really appropriate you know, whether private ownership and the fact that an individual is effectively one individual who lives in East Dorset makes all of the decisions about this feature in the, in the smack bang in the middle of, of Northern Ireland. So I think really that's why at its heart, that's really what this is about is, is that appropriate? Is it okay that, you know, that one person is, is making all of the decisions about the ownership of the lock? And I think that kind of leads on to maybe talking a bit more specifically about some of the specific problems with the current ownership status. So, you know, the current donor, who I mean, we've probably heard in the media, that is the, the 12th Earl of yeah. Shaftesbury, yeah. Um, who actually inherited Loch Ness in 2005. Um, the current owner is entitled to any benefits that can be derived from the lock, and that includes benefits relating to mineral rights, like sand dredging, and also any income generated from like lease and license like that, that sand dredging and stuff like that we know that that extraction has happened quite extensively I mean, there was press coverage in, in a number of um outlets this weekend about n- numerous gaa stadiums being built yeah. with concrete with sand from Ness. so we know that that's and i think like one of the state a couple of football stadiums in england have been built with that so do you think you know obviously that extraction the, the current owner has taken advantage of those rights so far yeah, I mean, I suppose this is I suppose this is the the issue around private ownership. So you know, decisions that are made in relation to what happens in and on the lock, the way in which it's used and managed, those decisions are conditioned and informed, I suppose, by the idea and the sense that the lock is a business asset, right? So it's a you know it's it's something that is there. It's making money for for the current donor, yeah. and that's something that. You know, that that's shaping the kinds of decisions that are made. So the owner is entitled to any benefits that come from the lock, but isn't dealing with any of the harmful. And who is? Like, you know, so, I mean, it's the, it's the local communities yeah. and, you know, the, the environment, environment of course. Yeah. Like, so, yeah. you know, the lock is, is obviously a, a delicately balanced ecological system in itself. And 
having the sand dredging, you know, like it's literally, I mean, I don't know technically how sand dredging yeah. happens, but my understanding is that it's boats that go out onto the lock. They put down tubes to the to the, the bed of the lock yeah. and literally just take yeah. the sand away. And and you you know, you you can't help but yeah. visualize how damaging that must be. It's literally destroying the well, when you've got the that, ecosystem. That compared with we also know from me I think a lot of the media reports have focused on like what are the actual physical causes of this? So we know sand extraction is one. We know that invasive species um is another one. But I think that the other two major ones, which I think need to need to be flagged, is the sort of the nutrient overload from sewage discharges. But yeah. also, and I think fundamentally, this is one of the biggest ones, is obviously the agricultural runoff and the pollution from from agriculture. And I think that's been one of the um increasing folk, you know, the the focus points um of the analysis is that, you know, the going for growth strategy from 2013. Yeah. I mean, it was in the Irish Times today from Newton Emerson. That that you cannot have an intensification of agriculture without having proper regulatory systems in place to deal with it. So you've got this problem with regulation. You've got the problem with the owner controlling the extractive industries there, or yeah, and from and the, it. the way the decisions are being made, and the way yeah. the decisions are being fueled and and yeah. informed, and all of that has kind of coalesced into the crisis yeah. that we're seeing at the minute. And I think there's been a lot of chat in in the media coverage about this idea of public ownership and whether whether that could could help alleviate some of the problems. And I think that actually, in a lot of ways, it's a little bit problematic because I well, I've read a lot of stuff that sort of talks about public ownership as if it's like a magic bullet, right? As if that yeah. we're going to switch from private ownership to public ownership, and that's going to solve all of the problems. And I think that it's important to recognise that actually it's much more nuanced than that it's not as as straightforward as saying right we'll we'll just you know public ownership yeah we'll get the state to buy the lock from the 12th earl of shaftesbury and then everything is going to be fine yeah. you know of course it's a very very complex problem and the thing is that public ownership isn't necessarily going to lead yeah. to better environmental outcomes right so yeah. if the public ownership essentially will involve a sort of a government body so you know probably dira um would kind of manage, own and manage the lock on behalf of the public, but they would also be under specific, they would have specific obligations and requirements to manage it in the public interest. And sometimes that can be interpreted as, you know, making the most money as possible. Yeah. You know, so we can, there, there's the potential for some quite problematic governance arrangements and quite problematic decision-making yeah. that could flow from public ownership. As well. I, mean, I mean, that's not to say that, you know, there should be, there's no opportunity to, for economic benefit to arise from public yeah. ownership of the lock. I mean, it's, but I suppose, I mean, the, the thing that I'm interested in is w what would the potential benefits of public ownership be? Because we know it, it's not necessarily going to deliver better environmental outcomes. It's not necessarily going to mean a shift in focus from economic benefits. But what are the positive reasons behind? Why is there a push, do you think? For public ownership, is it just because it's it has failed so abysmally up to now in private ownership, or is there more fundamental? Well, reasons? I, guess, I guess the attraction of talking about public ownership is that it's something it's shifting away from that kind of centralized decision making. So that agenda setting power, a private owner, is you know it's essentially it's one guy, yeah, you know, and so it's kind of distributing the decision making over a larger number of people, over a larger number of stakeholders. And kind of, like you say, it's it's broadening out 
the reasons behind decision making. So there will be some economic considerations, yeah. but then you know there would also be kind of environmental and social justice dimensions yeah. to the kind of decision making as well. But only if the governance arrangements are carefully designed yeah. with the environment and local communities in mind. Yeah. So it's kind of, I think it's that idea of public ownership is is shifting away from it being kind of a centralised yeah. decision making. So also, that would allow like public participation, for example, to take place in consulting around what that ownership or what how the lock is used and how we interact with the lock. And I think that's something critical yeah. that's missing at the minute is that when it's maybe in private ownership that that public participation or consultative element isn't as uh, as prominent as it, as it should be, you know. So um, I think that that, to me, that would be a, a very strong argument for it because obviously it, you know, it borders five of the six counties in the north, you know, and yeah. um, there's many, many, many other stakeholders beyond the people who are going to be made rich by the sand extraction, you know. Yeah, so. and, and I think this is one of the, uh, like one of the things that we, people have talked about is um, this idea of, of the commons or sort of community ownership which is one option. So it's not exactly the same as public ownership. And I think that we need to be clear about that. So when we talk about all of these kind of different governance options or different kind of ownership structures that might be more, that might produce better environmental outcomes. They begin with state acquisition yeah. or, you know, the public, the, the lock being acquired on behalf of the public, that, that would be the beginning. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily lead to sort of public management. So this idea of community ownership um, would be a sort of alternative model of ownership. And that would obviously mean that the communities themselves, there would be a sort of community body established that would be representative of a number of different stakeholders. And they would own and manage the lock on behalf yeah. of the local community. So you can see how that's a much more... Um, participatory yeah. um, kind of model of ownership and management, which feeds yeah. in exactly to the so kind maybe, of stuff you're saying. Maybe it's, it's probably, it's more accurate to say that rather than pushing for public ownership, it's a push away from private ownership. Yeah. And then to explore the options within that that would deliver the most participatory functions that would allow, you know, a, a voice for the environment. And maybe this is where this idea about rights of nature comes in. Because yeah. Um, you know, we've done some, EJ and I have done some work on that and, and Bruna and, and your colleague at Queen's, Dr. Peter Doran's yeah. working at the minute yeah. on um, constitutional amendment to the Irish con constitution, um, you know, to integrate a rights of nature, um, you know, you know, sort of prerogative um, at a constitutional yeah. level. So where do you think the rights of nature stuff comes into this debate about Loch Ness and ownership? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of important points to make about the rights of nature. I, from my perspective, it's something that has really captured like public attention. Yeah. You know, I think that people can, people like the idea of rights of nature, um, and as you say, it was you know it was discussed um, as part of the Citizens Assembly on Biodiversity Loss yeah. um, last year, and you know it was one of the recommendations that came out in yeah. that report yeah. that people kind of wanted to see some kind of constitutional amendment, some kind of recognition yeah. that nature also has the right to exist, the right to flourish and those kinds of things. So I think the rights of nature conversation more broadly is it's quite it's quite a broad ranging yeah. kind of philosophical kind of yeah. approach. But I think the important thing to say within it is that there's no one 
correct way of like doing or achieving. Yeah, because it's been done in, in different ways yeah. in so countries we, all over the world. Yeah, so like, it's, yeah. sometimes it's constitutional amendment. Um, you know, there, there are a range of different ways of doing it. I think that there is scope to, um, to use a rights of nature approach to produce better environmental outcomes and secure a more sustainable future for Loch Ness. But we need to choose the right kind of approach. Yeah. And it's not going to look the same in different places. I think for somewhere like Loch Ness, um, a really useful model that could be used is the one that was used in um, Te Urawera in New Zealand, which is a former national park. Um, and back in 2014, the New Zealand government passed a piece of legislation that basically granted the fee simple ownership, so that literally the land ownership, yeah. um, the ownership of the park itself in the park. So the park okay. essentially, it, it's a piece of land that owns itself. itself yeah. Okay. And that, that was, you know, was established in a piece of legislation. So it's a very, very um, kind of detailed uh, sort of piece of legislation. It's, it's yeah. very, very long. Um, but at the beginning, it essentially establishes two fundamental things. The first one is that the park has legal personhood. So it's, it's, it's capable of, of having rights, yeah. um, which is that's something that's kind of intrinsic to the rights of nature movement. And also that the land is inalienable, so it can never be transferred okay. again. So it can never be sold. Sold. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. that's the thing. So it takes away that possibility. Okay. Completely. So I suppose you know. Again, it, it's it's a different place. It's, you know, it's a different context. Yeah. But that kind of model could be something yeah. that works at Loch Ness. So I know that sometimes when you hear about the rights of nature, it's kind of hard to visualize or conceptualize exactly what that's going to look like. Yeah. If, if well, we've had conversations about how, you know, there's the, the, the philosophical or the kind of, you know, the sentiment behind yeah. it. I think that's not difficult to get people behind. Yeah. We saw that in the Citizens Assembly. But the, the big questions, I suppose, come in, how do you operationalize yeah, that? Yeah, I think that's it. And, and how do you operationalize that in the context, especially in the North, where there's been complete collapse of many ecosystems? But also systemic failure across all regulation. I mean, is it that it, does that make it harder, or does that make the prerogative to to try something else like rights of nature really more important? Because everything else so far has failed, and I think yeah. this is the conversation that um, the rights of nature discussion is beginning to um, push into the public domain. And I think Loch Ness maybe is a totemic example yeah, in it's it's the I most so. obvious one especially now given the ecological collapse maybe this is exactly where the rights of nature movement becomes operationalized yeah, in, in Ireland I know? agree I agree I think as well rights of nature is like you say it's it's is at the time have we gotten to the point now if not now then yeah. when we're seeing what's happening at Loch Ness well, there's not going to be like much when? less protect if we don't do it now yeah, do you know no, I know exactly and I think it's you know the, the rights of nature movement it's it is novel and it's yeah. and it challenges ideas about existing kind of environmental regulation, but it challenges ideas about property as well. And going yeah. back to that question of ownership, it challenges the the idea that property and ownership is all about entitlement, and it kind of pushes it towards being something that's actually about responsibility. Like, should we, yeah. should we change the kinds of ideas and beliefs that we have about what it means to own something. Well, I suppose it's like rebalancing the the, the duties and obligations with the rights of property owners as well. It's about yeah. reimagining that in the context of our relationship with nature, you know. So, but what does that look like? So you you've sort of said that there's an example from New Zealand that that might work here. Um, but I mean, my concern would be that it would be easy to think about a change to ownership has been the only thing, as you say, a magic bullet that 
is going to fix the problems at Loch Ness. But really, it's going to be have to be part of a much yeah. bigger series of events or series of changes that needs to happen. And, you know, one of those is a complete reform of the environmental governance system in the north like that. If without yeah. that, you know, the pollution is going to keep happening. And no matter who owns the lock, that yeah. is going to keep, you know, that, that's going to keep being a problem. So I think that's something that we, you know, need the, the, the British and Irish governments need to both look at as a matter of urgency. But in tandem, that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be a push for the change in ownership or, yeah. you know, and a look at whether this rights of nature approach might actually be the, you know, the most effective way of ensuring that we don't continue to see further decline. Yeah. And challenging the status quo. Like, yeah, I think that's, yeah. that's ultimately, that's what it's, what's all about. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, you're right. There's urgent action yeah. needs to happen, like, like literally yeah. immediately. Yeah. Um, you know, we need to place greater restrictions, perhaps, on agricultural activity yeah. um, in a, around the lock. Because we know, like, this is the point is we, we know what is causing the problems. Like, we know what the issues are. Um, but of course, it's really difficult to make any of these kinds of decisions or take any of this action in the absence of a devolved yeah. administration. Well, and I think the thing is, I mean, like you said, like there's urgent action is needed. I mean, if we saw the same urgency from the British and Irish governments and the politicians who are supposed to be sitting at Stormont, you know, yeah. to get to getting back into government, I think that urgency might be able to be acted upon. But we're not seeing that. And I think so what needs to happen now is we need to look at what are the alternative mechanisms of governance that can function in the absence of Stormont yeah. here. And I think that the Irish government needs to appreciate that this is an all-island problem. As I said at the start, you know, the, the catchment area of Loch Ness crosses the border. Yeah, like and, of, the, and of course the Water Framework Directive, yeah, still, the EU's yeah. Water Framework Directive still applies in Northern it Ireland. It still applies. Yeah. And also <laughs> and in the Good Friday Belfast Agreement, I mean, environment is part of strand two one of the areas of cooperation you know we we just haven't seen the structures established under the under the good friday agreement being used to their maximum potential yeah. to ensure that cooperation and collaboration occurred so i think you know we we published a report on linking the irish environment um you know before the summer and i think we cover quite a lot of those issues and how those structures such as the you know the british irish um you know council like the 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 the, the North South Ministerial Council, you know, all of those structures established under the Good Friday Agreement, there, there's more potential that can be used. And the question now is, in the absence of Stormont, yeah. how could they be used to deal with problems, emergencies like Loch Ness? Yeah. You know, so, <clears throat> and I think, you know, it's all very well saying, you know, the British and Irish governments need to step in, but we need to talk in specifics, like who is it within those those structures that needs to step in and do something? Can Councils do anything. I mean, we saw you and I were at Belfast City Council, yeah. and that was a motion about ownership. Yes, so that was a motion um, that passed. Actually, yeah. um, that was about exploring the possibility of public ownership and 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 specifically a rights of nature yeah. approach. And that motion passed. So there's you know there's yeah. support for those yeah. at council level. Like we know that. So I suppose it's just about harnessing, like you say, the mechanisms that are you know that are actually able yeah. to deliver action yeah yeah i think that's that's critical now i think we need to start talking in specifics about who exactly can do what i mean there's been talk about setting up a task force there's been talk about you know oh like in general terms the government stepping in but at this stage that 
that it needs to move beyond that. And we need to look at what can happen right now um, and what can happen right now in the absence of a government. Because even if Stormont comes back in the near future, which, I mean, the jury's out on whether that's <laughs> no. going to happen, but it's still going to be a long time before there's any sense of stable government here. So anything that is established now, um, especially cross-border, all-island um, structures or cooperative entities, they need to be able to weather the storms of an unstable government and unstable yeah. governance arrangements in the north. So I think the victims of that will be the environment, you know, like that's one of the areas that requires m multiple levels of cooperation between departments. It's obviously a cross-cutting issue because you've got agriculture, environment, but you've also got economy, yeah. you've got infrastructure. You know, these are all issues that require proper leadership and at the minute we just don't have it here yeah and i mean like you say the, the victim of that is is yeah. the environment yeah and all um, the people and communities that depend yeah on, yeah you know lock now for their livelihood you know um and never never mind its own intrinsic worth as a you know part of nature you know and i think that's something that it's it's hard to put a, a price on that but that's something that increasingly the public are becoming to you know are coming to be aware of that yeah. that, that is there's a need to rethink our relationship with nature, I guess. Yeah. And I think that's probably, you know, that's a good place maybe to to end, yeah. to like finish up the conversation is that it's about rethinking the way in which we relate to to the world around us and the yeah. way, the kind of value that we place on it. Like, is it yeah. just economic value? Like, that's a really important question that yeah. we need to ask ourselves now about Loch Ness. Is it just of economic value or is it about yeah. much, much more than that? Sort of the cultural, environmental, it has such such a rich all these sort of layers of significance yeah. and meaning and are it you know is the current owner you know aware or like yeah. tuned in to those layers of significance and meaning and really like i mean what can the law do for us in this situation yeah. I mean, we obviously have the environmental law but property law is obviously something that can come into it and i think maybe we need to explore how property law can play a role yeah. in achieving the outcomes that maybe environmental law hasn't done to yeah. date. I mean, it's always it's always a toolkit, isn't it? Sort of environmental yeah. governance, there's a range of difference. So we're not saying we only look at ownership and property yeah. or we only look at sort of yeah. more effective environmental regulation. You know, we can see there's, there's a range of different things yeah. that are all coming into play here. So action needed, I think, across all of those yeah. areas to... Right now. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, yeah. So, thanks. I mean, thanks very much for for listening to Kira and I just have a, a bit of a a bit of a chat <laughs> um, about what needs to happen um, at Loch Ney. And yeah, so hopefully we'll see some yeah, we'll kind be doing of some more work on it um, yeah. over the next few months. And I think you know, there's a lot of organisations that have been doing great work. You know, around the loch itself, there's community yeah. partnerships and trusts, yeah. and also Friends of the Earth um, have been doing work on this for you know for over a decade. So yeah. I think you know, there's many people are now looking at what can be done here and I think it's now time to harness that you know motivation and um, yeah and for see, sure see what can happen yeah okay thank you 